What we're doing this quarter is we're going through the book of Ephesians. It's a letter Paul wrote um, to a bunch of new Christians. And uh, throughout this letter, what's been happening is Paul's been trying, his prayer has been like, I want y'all to begin to see the world through God's eyes, uh, to begin to see what's wrong and to understand yourselves and to understand God. And he's saying that there's, there was a fundamental relationship between humanity and God that was broken. And when that relationship was broken, when dysfunction happened in that relationship between us and God, dysfunction happened out into creation as well. And what happened last week in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is he talked about how there were, you were enmity with God, we were separated from God, and Jesus bridges that relationship and he brings healing into that vertical relationship between you and God. What he's doing in these next 10 verses is he's saying that very same gospel of Jesus Christ also brings horizontal healing. God heals things between you and Him, but the very same gospel, and actually Jesus' death on the cross, not only heals things between you and God, but it actually heals things between people across creation. So that's what these verses are about. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Let me read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore... Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that at one time, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And has, brought, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom together the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us. Lord, there are a lot of words here, and we can't get to all of them, but I pray as we read your servant Paul and we read your word, your spirit would attend to him. And I pray that you would give us a love for one another, a love for your people, a love for people in general, um, because of your love for us, and that you would begin to change the way maybe we think about friendships and maybe the way we think about groups and the way we include and exclude others, dear God. This is such a difficult topic, I know, in my own life, to understand how to love people different from me. So be with us, Holy Spirit, and teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. So, when you begin to talk about, when the Bible begins to talk about horizontal relationships, and it begins to talk about the people of God, um, there's this term that comes into conversation that we'll talk about tonight, but several times later in the quarter. And it's one of the most annoying terms in the world, and you see it at the top of your thing, and you're like, oh no, I can't believe we're going to do this. And we are, and we're going to do it a couple more times. We're going to talk about the church. And there's like nothing 
more <laughs> uncool than talking about the church. And the reason why, and I'm genuinely conceding this, is because church is weird and it's kind of lame. And we can, this is a safe place, and you can say that, and you can nod. If that's your amen point in the sermon, that's okay. So if you need to say an amen to the church is lame, now's your time. <laughs> uh, just kidding, it's not a safe place. What's your name again? Uh, I'm kidding. Um, it's not cool. It's inconvenient. It's Saturday morning. Is there like any worse time for college students to be involved in anything? I mean, sorry, Sunday morning. <laughs> Whoa. Y'all are paying attention. Sunday morning. There's not a more inconvenient. The only more inconvenient time actually would have been Saturday morning. But obviously Jesus came. And when he came, he changed the day of worship to Sunday so that we could watch college football on Saturday. Because God loves college football and not the NFL. But we're not going to talk about that today. Weird people go to church. The music uh, can be pretty odd. Um, there's old people there who want to be your friend. Uh, I don't, they're kids. Um, they're unintelligent people. Um, this is the most amens I've ever gotten. Uh, there's needy people. It's just, there are just so many different ways it can be uncomfortable. Uh, to be around that community. And, you know, if you're conservative, you're going to find liberals there you don't like. On whatever conservative liberal spectrum you're talking about. And if you're liberal, you're, you're going to find conservatives there you don't like. You can find almost any kind of person you don't like at church. And um, how's that for selling the church, right? Um, I, I kind of think of it, there's the Seinfeld episode. There's just, It's a really brief line uh, interaction that happens between... Uh, Jerry and Elaine, when uh, I forget who says it, I think Jerry says, like, people. And Elaine goes, ugh, they're the worst. <laughs> and uh, for that reason, among others, that's why we started maybe 30 or 40 years ago, and it didn't happen until the last 30 or 40 years, and unsurprisingly, in a capitalistic, individualistic, consumer-driven culture, we started th- saying things like, I'm spiritual but not religious. And that's a way of distancing ourselves from the church but still trying to be Christian. I don't believe in organized religion. Um, I, I like Jesus, but... I don't like his followers, which is a really hard one to stomach because Jesus' favorite thing in the world is his followers. So how can you like Jesus and hate the people he loves so much? But that's another conversation. Um, I read the Bible, but I'm not into institutional religion. And so what we've done is we've crafted a new version of Christianity that history's never seen and that I don't think the Bible sees, where it's this individual relationship with God and this optional relationship with his people. When in fact... The whole purpose of God's story is to make a people. From the very beginning of the story, His promise to Abram, when the redemptive story of Scripture starts, He says, I'm going to make you a blessing and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And the Jewish, the chorus line of their self-identity is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And what Paul has actually said up to this point all over chapter 1, he says in verse 10, God's plan for the fullness of time was to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, things in on earth. It's to unite things. God's plan was never for just you and Him to have a uniquely special private relationship. 
That, that is a part of your relationship with God's people and a part of your Christian faith. But it is never intended to only be that. And it's quite truncated if it's only that. And in fact, chapter 1, verse 22, there's a verse that maybe snuck by you a couple weeks ago. God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. Paul's argument in the book of Ephesians is that all of the Christian faith in some total is about God gathering together this institution, this people group called the church. And what the way you need to think about the new heavens and the new earth, if you read the book of Revelation, here's your main category, your main framework. What it's mostly about is people partying together. That's how you're... That, uh, we were talking, my girls were asking me, like, what is heaven like in uh, my children? And I said, well, do you enjoy it when you're around the people you enjoy the most? Yeah, they never want to leave family. When we, when we go home for Christmas and come back, they cry. And I said, that's what heaven is like. It's like that moment never stops. It's being with the people you love and with the God you love. And it's quite literally actually a party. Christianity finds its culmination in the church. Uh, it's actually the purpose of God's plan. A lot of times we think of community of, like, Britain's own his little kind of Christian trail to be a better Christian, and I'm, community is kind of this tool. Oh, I need to get some community so I can keep improving me and my Christian life. Okay, it's not a tool. It's the purpose. It's the end. It's actually the result. It's God's design for you. It's not to be the best Christian you separate from everybody else. It's to be built together into the body of God. Maturity actually only happens in the church. And so this is what I want you to think if you're a Christian. I want you to walk out tonight, and, all, but, and this is going to happen a couple of other times this quarter because the book of Ephesians is about God's community. And I want you to think, there's no way I can really think I'm experiencing genuine Christianity if I'm outside of the church. I want you to think... You can't read Paul's letter to Ephesians and think, I'm really experiencing spiritual vibrancy even though I'm outside church. No, I don't know what you're experiencing, but it's not biblical Christianity. Um, and I'm not saying that joining a church is the thing that saves you. That's a very different thought. What I am saying is if you're not being drawn into and enjoying God's community, then what you're practicing and what you believe, the Bible doesn't give you much confidence that that in any way could be considered the Christianity that Jesus advocates for. If it can be considered Christianity at all. Since the very purpose of God's saving work is to gather His people together. If you're not a Christian, this is a great thing for you to be here for. Because I want you to hear this. The church has an incredible amount of issues. And, and the most prideful statement I'll make is this. I'm probably better at criticizing the church than you, not because I'm superior intellect to you, it's only because I have four years of theological education that taught me what the church should be. And I know what the church should be like in Greek and in Hebrew now. So I just have some more tools for criticizing the church. The church has major problems, historic ones. Uh, this is my challenge to you. If you're here and you're, one, you're like, I don't know where I am in terms of relationship to Jesus and His people... Simply consider this, and if you've been around if you've heard me say something like this before. If the church really is full of weird people, if it has a horrible history of abuses and infighting and division, if there are bigots on both sides of the spectrum, liberal and conservative, and you just find all kinds of distasteful, reprehensible episodes in church history, maybe that are personal to you or maybe on a larger historical scale, and yet 
The church has done something no other human institution has done. It has reached every kind of class of individual. Crossed ethnic boundaries that nothing else has crossed, crossed geographic boundaries, socioeconomic boundaries. Maybe it's true that in an institution that jacked up, yet has reached that many people and gathered more different kinds of people than any other movement, any philosophy, any, any other religion, any other government, any other type of economic system, maybe there's actually something beautiful at the center of it. That's my challenge to you. I agree with your criticism of the church, most likely. My question to you is, if that's right, how come it continues to grow and continues to reach more different kinds of people than anything else? I want you to consider that maybe there's actually something beautiful at the center that actually can work with really broken people, that doesn't require people to be perfect for it to last, and not only to last, but to grow and to bless people. Maybe there's something beautiful there. So what I want to do tonight as we talk through this issue of the church and of community, I want to talk through personally why that's hard for us, because that's what Paul talks through. And in verse 11, the first, uh, first half of that verse, really, or the first verse... Remember at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, and you were called the uncircumcision by the people who call themselves the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. What's he talking about here? Right? You, there are quotes around uncircumcision and circumcision, actually. And uh, he's reflecting on something. He's speaking to the Gentile Christians about the way that we instinctually build walls between each other. And the kind of walls that have been built up between them and other religious people. There's this inborn thing in all of us, doesn't, it doesn't just refer to Jew-Gentile relationships, that wants to separate ourselves from certain types of people and associate with others. But we rarely can admit that's in us. So when the Jewish, the circumcised people called the Gentiles the uncircumcision, that term was a derogatory term to reflect to the Gentiles. It was the way of the Jewish people saying like, yeah, you might be a Christian now, but you don't really take your faith seriously. You're in our religion, but you're kind of this second-class citizen within our faith. You don't really get it. And Paul is talking to new Christians about the way they were treated by serious religious people because even in the church, we divide and we build walls. Paul's recognizing that. Why do we do that? We have this thing in, our, in us that loves to separate from some and associate with others. This is why. We actually, we are all compelled to do it, and none of us can't do it, because it's how we find identity. And as liberal and as accepting, maybe you want to think of yourself that we want to believe, I don't do that, I don't build walls of distinction between me and other people. I'm very accepting and I'm very thoughtful. We all draw lines between us and them. And we need those lines in order to understand ourselves and you might think, but I'm at Stanford, and, I, and, and I'm thoughtful, and I'm caring, and I'm tolerant, and this is a diverse place. And you're right, Stanford is diverse in some unique ways that a lot of communities aren't. It's diverse racially, it's diverse geographically, to a smaller degree, it's actually even kind of surprisingly diverse socioeconomically. So it's diverse along some lines that other communities are not, but Stanford is totally exclusive along new lines. In fact... It's, it's elite in its exclusivity along the lines of achievement, intelligence, and ambition. And guess what? People have done horrific things to other people in the name of those things as well. 
There's a brand of elitism and paternalism here that's totally oppressive and totally arrogant. Here's why I know it, and it's true of me and it's true of you. Here's, I can prove to you that we're all elitists because none of us think we can actually really be peers and be friends with poor, dumb people. There, those are people we should serve, but, but actual friends and the way that you're friends with somebody in your dorm, that can't happen. You know why? Because you believe there's an us and there's them. So your service to them, yeah, it's kind, but you still actually don't do the dignity of them of treat, dignity to them of treating them like they're, they're not a them. You still believe, well, I'm a, but I am a Stanford student. And Stanford students don't, they don't ha- they're not actually friends with homeless people in the way that we're friends with our other friends. Yeah, because you believe in an us and a them. And I believe in an us and a them. And so in, an, in, this, in this room, whether or not we want to believe it, there's still racism. There's socioeconomic division. We divide over age. We divide over sense of humor. We, desire, we divide over personality. Right? I can't relate to these. You, maybe you walked in this room tonight and you're like, there's a personality vibe here I don't know how to relate to. So there's a them and there's a me. And there's now a wall between us. And you're wondering, I don't know. I, I, I don't have to share the same interests. The songs are weird. Right? The songs just created an us and them, didn't it? Even in our service to change the world and to be Stanford students to serve the world, there's an us and a them. There's an I'm not like them. Why? Why do we do that, even in our best attempts to be kind and compassionate? It's because we're trying to latch onto an identity that gives us significance. And membership and identity in a group, it's never just innocuous. You're never just a Stanford student or just a Sigma Chi or just within a student organization. We need that membership to understand ourselves and we need other people not to be in it so that we can understand ourselves. And when your participation and your membership and your connection with a group becomes your identity, that's the birthplace of oppression. That's the birthplace of us and them. So we build walls between us and other sorts of people. Republican and Democrat, Greek and Independent, straight and gay, fuzzy and techie, slee people, right? They're so weird, you know? I'm just kidding. I actually identify with them. I'm a little more slee than whatever. But... Maybe tolerant. Maybe I'm tolerant unlike the intolerant people. We, we want people to know that we're the tolerant type so that we'll know that we're not like the nasty intolerant people. Even if you make tolerance your fundamental feature, you actually still become a bigot because there's nothing more offensive to tolerant people than intolerant people. Right? They're disgusting. You know, we need to get rid of the intolerant people. Your race, your ambition, your political views, personality, Stanford, our football team, Auburn people. They're so hard. Trying to love them. Right? (laughs) Sorry, that's me just kind of confessing. This is a safe place. Um, We we draw these walls because we're trying to craft an identity, a meaningful way that we can think about ourselves. And the only way we can do it is by creating a subpar class of people, of them. And what we can't be, what what we can't conceive of is being part of a group and not having anybody know it. Sports team, right? You gotta wear your sports gear. You gotta wear the backpack that identifies you around campus. Wouldn't it be terrible 
to be a starter on the football I don't know if there are any starters here. Wouldn't it be terrible to be a starter on the football team and no one ever know it? You want to know that you're part of the us and they're the them. You know? Stanford. What if, what if the day you graduated from Stanford, no one ever knew you went here? How terrible would that be? Isn't it awesome being known to be from Stanford? Maybe it's sexual identity. That's the way people want to craft their identity. Why is it disorienting uh, for us to try to conceive of being a part of a group but not having anybody else know it? Especially a group that says a lot of awesome things about us that we want to be said. It's because we actually don't know how to live in the world without these identities and we need other people to recognize they're a them and we're an us so that we can think of ourselves and understand ourselves and think well of ourselves and justify ourselves and say we're valid and we're right and we're good. And so Paul closes this section in verse 12 by stating the reality to the, uh, the Ephesian Christians and he says, you know what, there was a time when you were not a part of this group, the people of God. That actually is a group. Remember who you are apart from Christ. You are separated. The Christian church is a group as well. But it has one key difference. And we're going to talk about that in the second point. But Paul's saying there's a time when you're cut off from God. There's a time when you're cut off from Christ and alienated, cut off from Israel, which is God's people, strangers. The promises of God were not for you. You didn't have the hope of God. There was a wall. He's speaking to these Christians. And it was between you and God. You had walked away from the Father's love. That's what sin is. It's the choice to walk away from the Father's love. And if the Father's love is no longer your identity, what is? Well, then you've got to start crafting a new one. And you craft a new one by creating us and them. If God's goal is to craft a new identity in which actually those walls and those divisions die, and we stop seeing the world through these divisions and actually even stop seeing ourselves through these divisions, how could He go about doing that? while at the same time creating a group? That's the big question. What's the solution to erasing the divisions we see that actually cause oppression and alienation? And verses 13 through 18 are the key. It's like last week, but now in Christ. Jesus steps in and changes things. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by His blood. Jesus steps into what is broken... People who are, brought, who are far or brought near by His blood. You who are formerly separated from God and His people have been brought near by Christ's blood. He is our peace. Verse 16, the cross, by the cross, Jesus reconciles us, not just to God, but to each other. When He talks about destroying the hostility, He's talking about destroying hostility between God and between each other. And He's, by the cross, Jesus heals the vertical relationship between us and God and the horizontal relationships between us. And he's saying that something happened at the cross that doesn't just fix this, but also this. How does Jesus destroy the hostility between us? That's the big question. Here's what happens. At the, at the cross, hostility between you and God dies. This is Christianity 101. This is 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ suffered once for our sins. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. In Christ... There's no longer any hostility between you and God. Jesus paid the price for your sins. That's what it, what it means that He died for your sins is that all of the complaints and all of the accusation and all of the guilt that God could make against you, He leveled at Jesus and punished Him for. So God holds no hostility for you. 
the law of God can no longer make an accusation against you. And God, and this is, this is last week, He receives you as a perfect son or daughter because of what Jesus has done, not for anything in you. He doesn't eye you with skepticism. He's not waiting for you to recriminate yourself. Jesus resolves things between you and God. Now, this is the big point. How does that affect our horizontal relationships? This is the big point. Because of that, you don't have to justify yourself any longer. Because you're restored to God. Because you're His daughter. Because you're His son. Because you're adopted. Because your place in His family is secure. You don't have to justify yourself anymore. That identity is so big and so eternal and so seminal and fundamental to who you are that all the other ways you're trying to craft identity don't matter. You don't have to justify yourself anymore. You don't have to make a case for yourself. You don't have to know who you... uh, you, you, You actually do know who you are in Christ. You're secured in Him in God's favor by grace. And now... Here's what you got to see. All the walls we build up between each other that are built and we're, we're crafting our identity by excluding some other people, defining ourselves against them, those were always about justifying ourselves. Those were always about having somebody to look at and say, I'm not them because I'm part of the us. It was always about justifying ourselves. So that we can look at ourselves, we could say, at least I'm a Stanford student. At least I'm this type of person with these type of views. At least I'm a part of this group. At least I've achieved this way. It was always, walls are always about self-justification. And every other group, all the walls that we build... We, and then we look to to find identity and justification. They give you identity and justification based on something in you. There's something special about you that separates you from other people. Right? There's a lack of other. There's a lack in other people that prevents them from being a part of your group. That prevents them from full membership. And you know what? You might even lose that characteristic one day. Maybe, you know, talk to a graduated football player. When they leave that team. It is a very difficult process because now this, this separation that was there that really established them and gave them identity has evaporated. And guess what they are now? They're just a them. And it's very disorienting. Maybe you've been cast out of a friend group before. Why? Why does that happen? Because in the view of that group, you did something against the nature of the group and that prevents your membership. There's something about you that got you kicked out of that group that had your friends all turn their backs on you. Right? We're always trying to justify ourselves by looking at something in ourselves and saying, there's a thing in me that makes me a part of this group and distinguishes me from them. And if I'm a part of this group and not them, then I know I'm okay. And Christ creates the only kind of group in which that's not the case. How is this group formed? How can He create a group in which the walls are broken down? Because the group is based on receiving grace. So that in the group, you actually look at yourself and other people look at you as a part of this group and ask, well, well then what makes you eligible for that group to be in Christ's group? And you say, nothing in me. In fact, I've done everything I could to disqualify myself from this group. A group that's formed by the forgiveness of sins in the death of Jesus and given to you by grace, the entrance fee... Into the church is grace. 
It's not a price that you pay, and it's not a qualification that you meet. It's not a specialty you have or an ability you have. It's not even an observance that you keep. That's what Paul means when he says that Jesus abolished the law of commandments and ordinances. Those were the Jewish rituals, specific religious practices that they would use to distinguish themselves from others. The fee to join God's people is the blood of Christ, and He pays it for you. It's the only kind of group that should never oppress and should never exclude and should always welcome. And this is the frustrating thing. If you're a Christian and if you're not sure where you are, we still do all that stuff. I still do all that stuff. The Christians do in the church. But we only do it in so much as we don't get the gospel and we don't understand the nature of our membership in God's people. And any hint of hostility and separation and arrogance toward others, no matter how different they are, it actually it just it can't exist for very long in the heart of someone who understands the nature of grace. So then, then why are people still so jacked up in the church? And part of what you need to understand, and, and this, is, this is good news for Christians and ho- hopefully a helpful explanation for, for Christians and all of us who are struggling with why there's still jacked up people in church, it's because grace always attracts sinners. So in one sense, it kind of makes sense that when you get around a group of Christians, maybe a lot of us are going to drive you crazy. And you might have, should have expected it because we came to Jesus because we knew we were really broken. The church, more than likely, if you read the New Testament, obviously, the people who followed Jesus were much messier than the people who didn't. The church at Corinth was much messier than the people who were not in the church because really broken people said, I need grace. So, Lord willing, Jesus, He is working in the church, healing people. But you know what? If you come to the church, you're like, man, those Christians, they're not great people then you know what? You're probably encountering the Christian church. Because not great people really run to Jesus usually. People who think they're great usually don't. Every wall we build separates and oppresses, but Christ in the act of sacrificial love and grace, He forms the only kind of group that eliminates walls to which anybody is welcome. And the only way you can exclude yourself from this group is to say, I don't want the grace of God. So, moving forward, what, what does life look like now? How are we begin to kind of put maybe practical application to this? Paul draws out the implications. So then, verse 19, In Christ, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of the household of God because of what Christ has done. We together are the people of God, the household of the family, by virtue of being built together and established in Christ by grace. Jesus is the cornerstone. What does that mean? The Bible uses a lot of metaphors for the church. It talks about the church as a body. It talks about the church as a bride. Here Paul talks about it as being a building. And he's saying your life now is like that of a building. But it's not that you individually are the building. You're one of the bricks in it. And you need to view your life not as Jesus is making me into a wonderful building. You need to view Christianity as Jesus is making a new people into a beautiful building, and I have a place in that. That's the picture Paul 
has painted for us. It's not ideal and, and, and it's hard and it's messy. But it's a little bit like this. I'll give you an image. Life, I, I don't know if there's anybody in here who's been adopted. I'm sure there are. Um, uh, life in an orphanage can be terrifying. It's hard for children to understand who they are without a parent or a family that gives them identity. And so what children do in overpopulated orphanages is in order to understand themselves, they have to form friendships. They have to form connection. And those friend groups are vital for them feeling human. Those friend groups can be established along any kind of lines, um, similar personalities, same preferences, gender, schools, sports teams, anything like that. But they're groupings that will form because you, you just have to have a people. And it's not ideal, and the groupings can be contentious with other groupings. I can, in the worst-case scenario, they can be almost gang-like. Now, imagine one of these children is adopted. Imagine that child's given a new name. And they're legally established within a new family. And they're a full-fledged daughter, and they're a full-fledged son. And when they come into that new family, are they going to understand the new family? No. It's going to be rocky. And it's going to take work. The new family is going to speak differently. They're going to have a different accent. They're going to eat different things. Their life is going to have a different pattern. They're going to have different hobbies. They're going to have different values. Now imagine this child 100% adopted. Legally part of the family. Imagine that child refusing to come into the home. Because it's so odd in there. And they don't understand it. They're... They're threatened by it. They're unfamiliar with the patterns of the family. So they stand outside and they don't come in and enjoy their new standing that actually is already established for them. Their standing is not in threat, but their participation they're refusing to participate in. And so they're standing outside and they're looking in on the window and they're setting up camp in the front yard. And looking in on the window, they vaguely see the patterns of the family and they hear the muffled noises of the family. But they don't have a clear picture or understanding of what is going on in there. But it's all bizarre to them. That scenario is ridiculous. And if that scenario did present itself, if you could say anything to that child, what you would scream at them is you would say, Go in. They love you. Don't stay out here because you don't understand them. They are yours, and more than that, you are theirs. Go in. If you identify with Christ... And all you're doing is you're looking into the church. And the church is more, I'll talk about this in a minute, it's more than this, it's more than your small group. The church is something that has elders and structure and sacraments. These are biblical marks of the church. We'll talk about it later. If you identify with Christ and you're looking in on the church from a window and you're peeking in, Paul is screaming at you, why are you not going in? Why wouldn't you go in? Stop thinking, I've got to understand everything that's going on there, and, and they can't be weird. Those are, the, those are the worst possible reasons for not being a part of the church, for not enjoying the blessing of God. We're going to talk about this more in coming weeks, but for your own growth and for your own maturity, it's actually vital and it's actually good that you participate in a church that has weird people of different ages that you don't understand. 
It's your new family. And praise Jesus, your new family is not centered around your personality and being like you with your preferences and your peers. You have a new name. Don't stand on the front lawn and refuse to be receive the warmth of your family. The thing you need more than more 18 to 22 year old Christians is to be friends with a 60 year old and to change diapers on a six month old in the church. You need poo poo on your hands for Jesus. That's what real life is, that's what community is, that is your family. Christian growth happens in the church and not outside of it. Christian growth, the reason why is because Christ and His adopting love being the foundation of the church is building up the church. It's a building in which everybody's participating. You're not a building. We are a building. Christian growth only happens in community and community is not a tool For your personal growth, community is actually the purpose and the end result of growth, to love and to be loved. Four really short application points. First of all, you got to change the way you look at the church. It's lame, it's weird, music sucks, people are odd. Okay, that's exactly what a six-year-old would think who got adopted and walked into a new family. Their misunderstanding is not a reason for them not to be a part of the family. You're like, get over your misunderstanding, there's too much goodness here. RUF, Cardinal Life, Chi Alpha, InterVarsity, not the church. We are church members who go through the Bible together on weeknights. But the last thing the church is, is a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds that scored well on standardized tests. Those are not the marks of the church. Your small group is not the church. What you need more than... Three other freshman guys or four other junior girls who understand you is you need a 65-year-old mom and you need a 30-year-old single guy or girl and you need a 12-year-old. They're so weird. In terms of personal development, is another person just like you going to help you or do you think an 8-year-old is going to help you? You know what? The 8-year-old is going to help you way more than another person just like you because we're grown together and we're matured together. And the church. If your understanding and participation doesn't go beyond these student groups, you don't understand what Jesus is doing, and you're not enjoying what Jesus has for you. You got to look at the church differently. You got to. Here's another one: bring a friend. There are brothers and sisters all over this campus who don't know that their family is gathering together. They didn't know how to get there. They were too lazy or they were too tired and they wish they were there. I've met these people. You know these people. They're lonely and they're gasping for identity because they, their sense of who they are was established at one point, but they're losing a sense of who they are because they got to college. And college is this weird time where you separate from this church at home and you come and you're like, where is my family now? Where is my family now? Bring people to their family. Bring them to church. You can bring them to RUF. We're not the church, but we are the children of the church hanging out together. It's a start. And our goal is to bring people to the church. Think about the church differently. Bring somebody. Get lunch. See, I'm being incredibly practical tonight. 
Get lunch with somebody in this room that you don't know. We were orphans, adopted by Jesus, and we're discovering the stories of our new siblings, just like an orphan would, who's now adopted. It totally makes sense. Yeah, I walked in here. I don't understand these people. I don't know their stories yet. Yeah. So go learn each other's stories. Because we are now part of the same family. That's why we eat lunch together. That's why we're having a Super Bowl party. That's why we have dinner in the woods. And if you don't know where to start in a conversation over lunch, that'd be so cool. Y'all, y'all get lunch with each other. That's okay. Just ask, where are you from and what's your story? What do you think about Jesus? You can ask those questions. Think about church differently. Bring a friend. Grab lunch. Lastly, welcome to the family. If you don't know where you are and you think, that's the kind of group I want to be a part of. I want to come into this thing that's full of grace, that lets me rest from this identity-establishing work that is killing me, that never truly takes. If you're tired of trying to establish that identity every possible way, if you're tired of trying to prove yourself, there's a family into which your reception requires nothing but rest. To rest from your frantic identity searching. Which, of course, was only just a way of living apart from God. And it was terrible because it made us judgmental and insecure in identity. Jesus offers to bring you near. How? And not by your performance, and not by your ability, and not by your uniqueness, but by His blood and by His forgiveness. You are welcomed in the family. Anybody is welcome. Let's pray. Lord, I pray the good news of your community would be sweet to us and that we would be drawn to it, even if we don't understand it. In your name we pray. Amen.